Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to James chapter 3, and we'll read the first 12 verses. James 3, verse 1. <clears throat> Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by, very, by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as we come into James chapter 3, I want you to appreciate this morning that though James is changing the subject, it's still part of the same tree, if I can use that analogy. In other words, he may be on a different branch, and he may be addressing different fruit, but it's still part of the same tree that he has been addressing already. So I want to begin by sort of setting the background to this so that you can perhaps, if understand nothing more than verses 11 and 12 in particular. The reason I say that is because verse 11 and verse 12 um, are difficult to understand without the necessary background of remembering what James has already taught. So let me just illustrate the point if I can, which I have done so before, but this is by way of reminder. You've had the instruction, this is simply the reminder. Remember that now that you're in Christ Jesus, uh, you are no longer just in the realm of sin and death, but you're also in the realm of grace and life. Before you were saved, you were in this sphere. And in this sphere, you, there is sin and death. But in Christ, there is grace and life. And new life in Christ is where those two circles overlap. And you live within that oval shape, the overlap. And therefore, you struggle with both sin and you enjoy the grace of God. That is where you live. You live in that Venn diagram, in that oval shape, where there is an overlap between your old life and your new life in Christ. And that is a life of tension. That is a life of contradiction. That is a life out of which we can have 
hypocrisy. And so the reason you need to understand that is because the illustration that a good tree produces good fruit is hard to understand in and of itself, given that trees are, have one nature and you have two. And therefore, you have the ability to be able to produce good fruit, but you're also able to produce that bad fruit as well. It's not quite as simple as you being like a tree, a good tree producing good fruit. And James is illustrating this with the question that he raises in verses 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Well, it ought not to. We ought to, we ought to be one type of person, but we are not that one type of person because we struggle with sin. Now, our struggle with sin is something that we can overcome in Christ. We don't get to win every battle, but we get to win many. And so while James seems to be moving, as it were, into a new subject, as though it is, has nothing to do with what he has just said, it's not entirely true. He's just in a different branch of the tree, to use that illustration. It's the same tree, but he's in a different branch. It's the same subject. That is that your new nature in Christ is one to be promoted over and above your old nature in sin and death. And therefore, your tongue is going to be the sort of indicator of how well you are doing in practicing the faith, how well you are doing in leading a true religion, in cultivating faithfulness. And as it's been said before, whatever controls the heart wags the tongue. You can always understand what a person loves the most because it is often what they speak about the most. You're always able to tell what interests a person more than anything else because <clears throat> what is in their heart because it comes out of their mouth. The tongue almost has uh, a license all by its own just to speak whatever the heart feels. And here James is telling us that the tongue has to be kept under control. Now this is the very morning where the congregation are not entirely let off the hook, but it is quite clear that James is addressing teachers. And therefore this sermon is very much for those who desire to be teachers, and it is very much a discouragement to become one. But that doesn't mean that you are let off the hook entirely because you too have tongues, and with your tongues, you can misuse them in the same way a pastor can, a teacher of God's word. And so I want you to appreciate that everything that James has said, though it looks disconnected, is very much connected to what he's about to say when we are to use our tongues correctly. These are distinctions, they are not separations. James is distinguishing points, he is not making separate points. And so, his attention is here, verse 1, that not many people should become teachers. And so he discourages anyone who has the intention to become a teacher from becoming one, and then he follows that with reasons. And that is because the tongue is something that cannot be tamed. It has to be controlled, but it is an untamable thing. And so as we look through this, the focus is on teachers, but the congregation are not let off the hook. And the reason it focuses on teachers is because James is concerned 
with the spiritual condition of the fellowship. And therefore, if we listen to the words of Jesus, the one who used his tongue perfectly without error, and we follow his words, then we can understand that the words that he speaks to us actually lead to our spiritual upbuilding, that when troubles come, we will not be destroyed. We have listened to his words, we have done his words. His words lead to the spiritual welfare of the people that he is speaking to. In the same way, the pastor has to use his words, the pastor teacher has to use his words so that it leads to the spiritual welfare of God's people and not to their destruction. Now, you know this within any form of relationship. Any relationship you have where words are spoken, that nice words will build you up, encouraging words will encourage you, but the wrong word at the wrong time can destroy the relationship. And so if it takes 10 years to build a good relationship, it only takes 10 seconds with 10 words to destroy it. It is that destructive. It happens that quickly. And this is what James is trying to lay upon us with great weight. And so there is a distinction being made here in the subjects, but the subjects are not separated as though they have nothing to do with what James has previously said. Now, I've never fully understood the phrase, nor if I liked it, that uh, no one made you buy it. So my mum used to say to me when I would come home with something and I would wondered why I bought it, she would say to me, well, no one made you buy it. I'm not entirely sure that's true. That's not to justify all the things that I bought that I should not have bought, but rather it's to understand that biblically, I don't think scripture agrees with that either. I think scripture shows us that people can be persuaded. I think there are such things as persuasive words that sort of link to the desires of a person's heart that then mean you go out and do things that you should not have done. I think God shows us in his words that some words are incredibly influential, that they do have the power to direct and the power to destroy. They do have the power to make somebody else do something. And therefore, as we understand the use of the tongue and the words that come out of that, we can understand clearly just how powerful your words are. Words have a creating power. They have a destroying power. They have a protecting power to them. They shape lives and individuals. They persuade, they dissuade, they encourage, they tear down. You can do all of this with words, whether it be in the written form, the spoken form, whatever form it may be in. You're able to do this with words alone. So the issue of the tongue is an issue of words. Now, I also believe that people do need to be persuaded that people do need to be persuaded to make the right choice, especially when they're stuck in the very Esther position. What do I do when I don't know what to do? Well, that such a person needs to be persuaded to do the right thing by someone who knows what the right thing is. And so the teachers of God's word find themselves in a position where they are not restricted, but they have to keep certain rules of interpretation. They're not allowed to stray into errors because errors can lead to the downfall, the spiritual downfall of the people of 
God. And so, imagine now in a world where you have plenty of internet preachers and plenty of internet teachers, and now the problem is now widespread. Now the teacher doesn't just have to concentrate on his words, but he has to deal with the words of other people. He has to take them apart and deconstruct them and deal with them because of the damage that they can do to God's people. You are shaped by words. I am shaped by words. We all ought to be shaped and set free by the word of truth. But we are shaped by more words than just God's word. And this is what James is getting at when he tells us about the tongue. The tongue, your tongue, the tongue in your mouth and the words that come from your mouth has great power. You can direct, you can destroy, you can build up, you can break down, you can bless, you can curse, you can do all of those things. And who you do it to means that they will change in light of it. You speak to people. You use words to people. And so this is a very relational subject. This, this is about you and others. So let's look how James summarized this. He begins in verse 1 with the statement that not many of you should be teachers. And then he says, because the teacher will be judged with a stricter judgment. Why? Because the teacher is responsible for the spiritual welfare of the people that he teaches. I can't just teach a subject. I teach a subject to people. And therefore, if I convince myself that all I am is a teacher of subjects, I will not keep you in mind as I proclaim God's word to you. And therefore, it will either be helpful or non-helpful or irrelevant. But if I keep you in mind, not only do I have to reflect God's words in my mouth, but I also have to understand how you understand things. And now James uses several illustrations for why a person shouldn't become a teacher. And all of them show the power of the tongue. First of all, it is hard to control. Secondly, it is very powerful in giving direction. Then there are negative consequences to the tongue. That one wrong word is like a fire that can set a whole forest ablaze. And then, of course, he gets to the real point that how you use your tongue reveals the source. It reveals what is in your heart. And therefore, it wouldn't come out if it wasn't there. And so if it comes out of your mouth, it is an indication that it was in your heart. It's not an indication, it is the proof that it was actually in your heart. And so while this applies to teachers directly, it applies to all of us all the time. So here's the background. The error that James is having to address, remember, is people who believe that it is possible to have faith in God without corresponding works. And the question we want to ask is, and how on earth did you get that belief? Where did that belief come from? Who taught you it? Who spoke to you the words that it was possible for you to have faith without words? Those, that idea must have come from somewhere, either from your own imagination or from the words of somebody else. And so now we begin to see the impact of words on a congregation. James has to deal with this. Faith without works is dead. And he explains, and I 
I've explained, and I'll be writing an essay on this for those who raised several questions after my sermon last week, the relationship between justification, fruit, and faith and works. We will, I didn't address that last week, but I will address it in an essay for those who want it. But the point is, is that it's quite clear that if out of a changed heart that you have faith in God, it'll produce the corresponding works. Secondly, that ideas at an intellectual level or an academic level never remain at that level. They make their way down into the congregations of God's people. And so there are some theologians in the world that are not even addressed at a purely academic level, but who have become tremendously popular at a congregational level. Think of N.T. Wright. I can't think of a single scholar that addresses his new perspective on a purely academic level. I can think of plenty who do at a popular level because of its popularity in the congregations. But no serious academic has taken his views on. And there's a reason for that. But the other reason that I'm concerned with is the level at which it impacts the people of God in the congregation. Because now you're having to deal with the words of other people. You're having to deal with what they have spoken. Now it is possible, as James has already said, for a person to believe all the right things and do all the wrong things. It is, a, it is possible for you to be inconsistent. It is possible for you to believe what is right and then do what is wrong. But it's very unlikely, it's very unlikely for you to be able to believe what is wrong and then do what is right. That doesn't seem likely at all. And therefore, words and belief matters because of the impact that it has on the life that you then live. Now, when James addresses teachers and he discourages those who want to be teachers, it's found in the reality that as a teacher, your judgment will be stricter than anybody else's. And at this point, I also want to make a distinction between the prophet and a teacher. Now, a prophet is one who speaks God's word on God's behalf to God's people. It almost seems like a straightforward job, that all I have to do is listen to what God has says, convey what God has says to the very people of God um, themselves. The issue is clear. It's a very clear relationship between what God has spoken and what I am to say. The prophet, in the very classical sense, is a messenger, one who delivers the message of somebody else. But a teacher has to interpret the word of God. God doesn't speak to us directly. God has given us his word and we therefore have to read his word and then interpret his word and then speak those words to the people of God. And so there's now an interpretational level which is different than the prophet. And even Peter says that some of Paul's words are hard to understand. So how does the teacher of God's word make sure that he says only what God says to the people of God? What is the rule for making sure that as you listen to me this morning, you're actually hearing God's word and not mine? What rules do I have to keep to make sure you're hearing the words of God and not my words that I've made up or imagined or thought or would like to say? Because this is a complication that a teacher has to deal with. 
And so the first and foremost rule is this, that the point of the passage has to be the point of the message. The point of the message has to be the point of the passage. And therefore, what the Word of God says, I have to say the same. And if I don't, if I don't do that, you're not hearing God, you're hearing me. So if you cannot see in the text what I see as I explain it to you, <clears throat> then you have the right to raise the objection at that point, <clears throat> I am no longer perhaps hearing God. Now, it could be an issue that you need to learn and see what I see. But it could also be the case that the preacher himself, the teacher, is not actually reflecting the truth of God's word. And so the very words that I teach have to be a reflection of what God has actually given us in his word. So the point of the message is the point of the passage, so that you can hear God's word and not mine. So now we begin to understand why these distinctions matter. Because it's very easy to be led into sin, especially when you know more. Think of Jesus' words to Pilate. Greater is the sin in him who brought me to you. No sin is the same. All sin is not the same. All sin deserves the judgment of God, but all sin is not the same. Greater is the sin in him who brought me to you. These were the words of Jesus to Pilate. But what was the greater sin? Well, it was the fact that he was handed over to Pilate uh, by Judas, who knew more about Christ. And so the reason Judas' sin was greater was because the revelation Judas received was greater than that that Pilate received. So greater is the sin when you know more. And teachers ought to know more. And therefore, if they sin in greater ways, you can understand the need or the requirement for a stricter judgment. And so a teacher of God's word must use the rule like a bit in a horse's mouth. The teacher must be kept under control. There must be something that guides him so that he is not left to himself. He must be guided by the word of God. He must have the word of God like a bit in a horse's mouth in his mouth so that he is then guided and shaped by God's word so that he can guide and shape the people of God with God's word. And without that, the people of God cannot have any confidence that they're hearing God, none whatsoever. And so the reason why not many should become teachers is because of a stricter judgment. Now we understand why, the greater revelation, the fact that we have to interpret, not just declare. I could just stand here and read the Bible and it may be a lot clearer, but my job is to expound and encourage you to do the word of God. And so now we appreciate that the teacher's tongue is one that has to be kept under control like a bit in the horse's mouth so that he cannot do what he wants to do. He cannot do anything according to his own nature. He has to be kept under control for the benefit of the people of God. Remember, teachers teach people. Okay? It's for your benefit that these rules and controls are applied to the teacher. And so we all stumble. We all stumble in our tongues, with the use of our tongues, but the teacher, when he stumbles, stumbles in a much greater way 
because of the people that are listening to him who can be affected by it. And so what is the import of his teaching? Or rather, what is the effect of his teaching? Well, the effect is, comes down to the words that he uses in the power of the Spirit. So four areas of control. Firstly, how do we bring our tongue under control? Well, we cannot rest on our own nature. We cannot think that I've done well before, I will do well again. It is an untamable thing. And therefore, it must be controlled in some way like a bit in the horse's mouth. An external control upon your tongue has to be used. And therefore, more time in the Word of God, more time in making sure the Word of God goes deep into your heart is another way of making sure the Word of God will then come out of your mouth. Okay, because whatever controls the tongue, whatever is found in the heart will then dictate to the tongue. That's where it comes from. And so your tongue reveals the level of depth of God's word and conviction within your own heart. That's where the control is. That's the bit in the horse's mouth. It is your heart being filled uh, in the spirit of God and with the word of God so that you're able to exercise control over your tongue. Or like my mum used to say to me, Daniel, bite your tongue. I don't know if you've ever bit your tongue, and accidentally it's very painful. But if you're actually standing there biting your tongue, not to say anything, it's quite painful. And as you bite your tongue, you're not really taking into consideration that that pain could manifest itself in different ways if you spoke those words. Now, we have all said things that we should not have said. The trouble is, is when we have said them, it sets ablaze the fire. It sets ablaze the forest. That's the danger. So we must keep it under control. James expresses an issue over control because the tongue is something that has great power. Secondly, a ship is propelled across the water by the wind, but it is directed by the rudder. And so now, not only does your tongue have power, a nature of its own that must be controlled, almost an uncontrollable power, but it can be controlled. It has, a, it has the power to direct something greater than itself, your life and the life of others. The words that you speak will direct your children's lives as they grow up. Are you encouraging? Do you tell them off when they need to be told off? Do you build them up when they need to be built up? Are you careful with your words? Are you thinking about what you're saying? Because every word spoken has the power to direct the life of another individual. And this is what James is getting us to consider with the illustration of the ship. It's small, but its power to direct something greater than itself is seen in the same way a ship is directed by a very small rudder. Directing the life of an individual, directing the life of many people. And therefore, if the tongue is not kept under control, if it is not kept under control, then it leads to directions that then lead to destructions. This is the third illustration. James moves our attention from something that has power, 
to something that has direction or can give direction to something now that can be easily out of control, leading only to destruction. So like a small fire, the small words that you speak can have great results. And James puts this very negatively, that often the greatest results that you have with your tongue are ones that actually destroy rather than build. <clears throat> In other words, that words that destroy are far more perhaps spread far quicker than it does to turn a large ship with a small rudder. I don't want to overextend the illustration because I don't think James is going there, but if you were to do that, we can all see the destructive nature of words and how long it takes to build a relationship back up with good words after a destructive word has been spoken. And so when you're not in control of your tongue, it has a, potentially has a very destructive power. It only ever leads to destruction. And so if you are not in control of your tongues, destruction is soon around the corner. This is what James is saying. When you have control, you're able to direct. But when you don't have control, it leads only to destruction. This is the movement of the illustration between the ship and the forest fire. And now he moves on to the question of worship. Now that he's given us this picture of words, he's given us this picture of just how dangerous the tongue is, he now moves on to the question of worship, that with our tongue we bless the Lord our God, and with the same tongue we curse those who are made in the image of God. How are we able to do that? And why can we do it so easily? Well, it is because that sometimes we can be given the words to follow, like going through our order of worship and we're saying these words and we are controlled by what we are reading. And this is good, but it has to permeate its way all, all the way down into our heart. Because if it doesn't, we then go out into the world and suddenly we have no means of control and now our tongues are being used in ways that they should never be. The real reason, or rather the source of the reason, is that unlike a tree, you don't just produce good fruit. Now it is true that a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. As an illustration, the point is that the fruit is an indication of the nature. And as we said last week, you have become partakers of the divine nature as we see in Peter. But you also have to wrestle with your old nature that can produce this old fruit, this bad fruit. And therefore, it is indicating the source. Where did that word come from? What were you thinking when you said that? What was going on in your heart when you said those words that you should not have said? You're just, you're just defaulting to your old sinful ways. And this is the very thing that James wants us to be guarded against. Our life is not as simple as a tree with one nature. We are a people who live in the conflict of two natures. We have become partakers of the divine nature as we live in the flesh. And the flesh causes us all kinds of troubles. But if we keep in step with the spirit, we wage war against the flesh, thus living our life in the context of the fruit of the spirit rather than the bad fruit of the flesh. 
And so the only way to exercise full control over our tongue, a tongue that cannot be tamed, is by submitting ourselves permanently, all the time, consciously, conscientiously, continuously, to the Word of God and the power of the Spirit, to make sure that our lives are being kept under control by something greater than us. Because in and of ourselves, we can't bite our tongue. We just do not have the strength to do that. And some of us have a great ability of being able to use words like knives when it comes to hurting someone else. We know how to say the very thing that that person would never want to hear. We just know how to do that. And the reason we know how to do that is because that's the sinful nature that gives us a kind of sinful wisdom to allow us to hurt others when we know we shouldn't. We're just very clever and very devious at being able to use our words in that way. And so unlike the tree, we are not as simple as the tree. We are not as simple as the tree in the sense that we only have one nature. As James says here, he raises the question because of the inherent contradiction. Does a spring pour forth, verse 11, from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Well, of course not. Of course not. Well, who are you in Christ? In Christ. Who are you in Christ? This is the question. Not who are you, but who are you in Christ? Well, I'm not a double-minded man. I am the faithful one. I am the, I'm the one who can pursue righteousness. I'm the one who has been set free from sin in Christ. Who are you? Which source are you going back to when you live your life? Can a fig tree, verse 12, my brothers bear olives? Of course not. Can a grapevine produce figs? No. Well, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. None of these things can happen. And so in Christ, what is your life to produce? We know what your old life produces. But what does it need to produce in Christ? Well, let me conclude with this. First of all, those in this congregation, or those who are with us today who may be teachers or desire to be teachers, Listen to James's discouragement. Don't be. Don't become a teacher. And if you are, if, if God has set that desire upon your heart to become a teacher, understand the stricter judgment. Understand the level of control that God must have over your life and that you must exercise in order to be able to teach God's word. In fact, I've taught a number of men that have been in my previous charges, that have come and done a three-month or six-month work placement, as it were, or a ministry apprenticeship, where they've just had to concentrate on one element. You know, normally they're with me for several years, but sometimes they have a segment where they get to concentrate on one thing. And it is often, most of them, all the time, always choose preaching and teaching. Hardly any of them choose pastoral ministry or counseling, because it's too difficult. Uh, teaching's difficult, but, and the reason for that distinction is here, that a lot of people who want to become teachers want to teach subjects. And I have to constantly point out to these young men that you're not, to, I'm young men, I thought I was young, constantly point out to these men who are not too far younger than me, um, that you're not a teacher of a subject, you're a teacher of a person. 
And the reason why you want to spend the next six weeks or six months or whatever it is concentrating on preaching and teaching rather than pastoral ministry and counselling is because you've made the distinction falsely that teaching deals with subjects and not with people. It's wrong. It's just so wrong. Pastoral counselling involves teaching, but it clearly involves people. But so does teaching God's word from the front. I'm not teaching you a subject here this morning. I'm teaching you. And I'm teaching me. And we're all being taught from God's word. So if you desire to be a teacher, but you don't desire the spiritual welfare of people, don't become a teacher. Don't become a teacher. Because that's what it means. Secondly, this is not just for teachers. It's for all of us here. The issue of the tongue is an issue that we all have. And so our tongues and our words are to be kept under control for all the reasons that James gives. Our tongue has a restless nature. And it, therefore, it is something that we must take continuous control over. Because the consequences of not having control over our tongue are only ever negative never positive it is negative so don't just be a hearer of this word be a doer amen let me pray gracious god and father i would ask you this morning that you would bless us with a heart for you that our heart would be filled and that we would keep in step with the spirit so as to live a life that <clears throat> shows and demonstrates that we are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And thus, Father God, that our works would be demonstrated in light of the fruit that we have. We pray, Father God, that we all know that our tongues are restless evil. And we ask, gracious God and Father, that you would give us grace and strength to be able to control our tongues for the benefit of building up rather than tearing down. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>